This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 11 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we we come to you this morning seeking the help of your spirit as we look at these words as we try to understand what they mean for us today and in this church, Father, we pray that you would sear them on our hearts and minds, that we can walk away from here being empowered and have the courage, Lord, to fight these battles that we have each and every day, Father, that there be no divisions among us, that we be of one mind and have but one voice, Father, and that you may be glorified through that. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So we are... Obviously, back in Corinthians this morning, and we're moving on to a new section, a new few verses, so to speak. And the section we are looking at today is a little bit familiar, is it not? It's a little bit familiar because we study the same sort of thing as we were finishing up the book of Romans in chapter 15. And we looked at this topic of unity in the church and and how important that is to the church and was to the church at the time Paul penned these words as well. I feel like this redundant drumbeat of unity is something that we need to be paying attention to because it is repeating itself and it is continuing to repeat itself. I, I don't believe that if it was just a normal study of something that it would be something that we shouldn't pay attention to or something that we shouldn't pay particular attention to. You know, you've all heard me talk about expository preaching as opposed to topical. Most of you know what that is, but we'll go over that again. And this is the reason why I think we need to pay particular attention to this idea of unity in the church. Expository preaching is whenever you take a passage, as we are doing, as we did throughout the book of Romans, and every week you cover one verse or a few verses, and it's just one after the other after the other until you get through. And that's what we did in Romans, that's what we're doing in Corinthians. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the the alternative approach is a topical, where I pick the subject where I pick what I want to talk about, and then I run about through the Bible trying to find scriptures to put in place to support my opinion or my belief or whatever I'm trying to say. Well, the problem, and not all topical sermons are bad, sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes you're speaking about a subject. 
when Christmas time arrives, I move to topical because it is Christmas time. When Easter is here, it's usually topical because it is the resurrection. But other than that, most of the time it's expository. It's one verse after the next. So what that ideally does is protect you all from me, from the things that I have running through my mind that are agitating or irritating to me, from picking out different things of culture or whatever it may be, and just honing in on that and beating that week in, week out. Whereas if I'm speaking expositorily, then I'm stuck with a passage of Scripture that God has placed before me at a certain time, in a certain place, and in a certain manner that I've got to deal with. So I hope you can see the difference, and that's why I think it's so important that we listen to what's being said and what's being put in front of us, because this is multiple occasions, as we've just been going through Romans and now Corinthians, that unity in the church has come up, that we've seen it before us and God has placed it before us on a number of different occasions. So I think that's why we should be taking or paying particular attention to this idea or notion of unity. Now, why? I can't answer that. I mean, I I don't think that we are particularly not unified. I mean, we're not pulling in different directions. I don't see it being a big problem with us as a church. I don't hear a lot of disunity going on or divisiveness going on. So that leads me to believe that it's coming. That leads me to believe that God is putting this before us so that we can face it in the future. And honestly, that's how you deal with spiritual trials and tribulations and struggles, is that God prepares us, and in that preparation, he gives us the strength and the knowledge and wisdom we need to face that time of trial, to make it to the other side, so that we can come out stronger than what we were when we went in. And I believe that it's coming. We don't just see these things over and over and over again, almost Sunday after Sunday, unless God is trying to tell us something. So we have to hold fast to God's word and his teachings, and we will pass through those times of struggles. So with that said, let us get to the text of today. I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul had an introductory section that basically we've been listening to and and studying for the past couple weeks. Well, he's moved beyond those preemptory, laudatory accolades that he's given to these folks. And he's getting to the heart of the matter. I mean, he's just shooting from the hip. There's problems. There's a lot of problems going on in this church at Corinth. And we're going to see the whole book unfold before us. And we're going to deal with those problems. And so Paul gets through the introduction and he gets right to the point. There's a problem and we're going to deal with it. And we're going to deal with this one first. There was a significant amount of disharmony, disunity, dysfunction, however you want to call it in the church at Corinth. Make no mistake, there is always going to be some discord, some disharmonies, some times when a church is not unified. And you say, well, why is that? Because Paul's encouraging us here 
all to agree, no divisions, everyone be united, be of the same mind and judgment. And we'll parse through that in a moment. But there's always going to be some sort of discord because we have wheat and we have tares, right? And Jesus says, they're going to grow together. You're going to let them grow together in the church. So there's going to be believers in this church and there's going to be unbelievers in this church. And anytime there are believers and unbelievers, there's going to be disharmony. There's going to be a lack of unity in the church. And so that's going to cause issues and problems when that arises. So in some respect, there's going to be discord and disharmony disharmony in every church. But that's not really what Paul's dealing with or talking about in this passage. In this passage. He's dealing with disharmony or discord between believers. And we're going to see that play out as we go through this passage. So he's dealing with a risk that's taking place in this church that it be divided. That it's split into different churches for the most part. So he begins in verse 10 by saying, I appeal to you. Or I beseech you. He's wanting to give them a sort of admonition. The word here for appeal or beseech, however the translate it translates it in the ESV, it's appeal. In others, it's beseech, comes from the Greek word parkaleo. Parkaleo is the same root word as paraclete. Does anybody remember what the word paraclete? meant in the Greek or who was being referred to when they talked about and used the word paraclete? Going once, going twice. Holy Spirit. Paraclete is used over and over and over again in the New Testament to refer to the Holy Spirit who is also referred to as the helper. So the helper So what Paul is referring to here is, I beseech you, I appeal to you as a form of comfort in that I'm going to help you. We're going to walk through this together. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to help you get through this time of division and strife. We're going to join arms and we're going to straighten this thing out and we're going to walk walk through it together. So... In this notion or idea that he is appealing or beseeching, there is also an undertone that I'm here to help. That you're not in this alone. You're not going to have to go through this difficult time by yourself. But I'm going to help you through this most difficult moment in the church at Corinth or in in basically since they've been established. He wanted his readers not to think that he was just there to condemn them, but he was there to support them and lift them up. Then Paul adds, brothers, believers, so I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he puts that phrase in there for a reason. And that, re- that phrase in, in there as a space filler. It wasn't as if he's thinking, mm, what can I add in here? What can I throw in here to just take up space? It's not at all. It was very pointed in why put why Paul added the phrase, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase was added to remind the readers who their Savior was. To remind the readers of whose name they had taken. 
who they were children of, who their father was. So he starts off by saying, I'm going to walk with you through this difficult time. And by the way, don't forget who your Savior is. By the way, don't forget who your Father is as we go through this. So by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all have taken. Last week, I think it was last week, I used the example of MacArthur getting arrested as a child for stealing cigars at a Sears and Roebuck store. When the police arrested him, they said, don't you know who your father is? That's the way it should be with us, right? And that's what Paul's saying here. You, you guys are being divided and there's no unity in your church. Don't you know who your Savior is? Don't you know what you should be acting like? But, but you're not. And unfortunately, that's often the case for all of us. But Paul really wanted them to see those words and understand that he was appealing, beseeching, being there to help them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that's who they were. They were children of Christ. So he is reminding them who they are. Because of all that, you all should agree. You shouldn't be fighting and quarreling and being divisive among yourselves. There should be no divisions among you, but that you be united with the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, this entire passage fails if Jesus was divisive, if Jesus did not preach unity, right? It does, because that's the example. He's saying, you took on the name of Jesus. He is your father. You need to act like him. If your father was divisive, then the unity argument wouldn't make any sense, would it? But that's what he's doing. But if you look in Matthew 10, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And I think we can all agree that in one way, Jesus is very divisive. His name is probably more divisive than any other name in the world today. But it's divisive between believers and unbelievers. And that's where I was talking about the wheat and the tare being in the church together. That's why there's always going to be some nominal amount of division in a church. Because there's believers and unbelievers that profess to be believers. And we let them grow together as the Bible tells us we should do. So clearly Jesus was very divisive in his time and to this very day. But that division was from unbelievers to believers, not in and among believers in and of themselves. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make here. He reminds them who their father is. Their father was not divisive in and amongst believers. Paul's writing about a different situation. And in order to prove that point and show the desire for unity that Christ has, we'll turn to his high priestly prayer in John 17. We pick it up at verse 20. I do not ask for these also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that I have given, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So you can see that Jesus is actually praying to the Father for unity for oneness, that the church and all the believers be united and one in the same way that Jesus and the Father are united as one. Now, he seeks this oneness for believers for a particular reason. Does anyone pick up the reason? And he tells us the reason in this passage on two separate occasions. Verse 21 And I give you a hint, it comes after the word, so that. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. To be united as one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he repeats it again in verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So this unity or this desire for harmony within believers has a purpose. That purpose is so the world, so unbelievers know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the Father's only begotten Son. That eternal life comes through him. And I hope you can see the beauty behind that. Whenever someone says we are to be united with one voice, you say, why? He tells us why. He tells us why. You say, well, that doesn't make, it should make a lot of sense to you. It should make a lot of sense to you because I'm telling you, without faith in Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no unity that can be had. Can't. You want to see chaos, disharmony, and everything that is the opposite of unity, Look at the unbelieving world. Now, they may portray it, but it's not there in reality. There can be no unity. So whenever you have unbelievers that aren't united with anybody except themselves, they fake being united with whatever person group may be. But whenever they see a group of people that is in perfect harmony, lockstep union with each other, there's no division, no chaos, no fighting, no backbiting. They're like, what's wrong with these people? Like, They've got something that I don't. They follow this Jesus, so he has to be the source of this unity. He surely must have been sent by the Father. Maybe he is who they say he is. So unity is a telltale feature of faith in Jesus and what he brings to the world. That's why it's so important. Paul tells them he's going to be with them, and then he tells them who their father is, and the reason he tells them that is to remind them Whenever you are unified, whenever we are of one voice, the world recognizes that. And it causes the world to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And that he was sent to the Father. If there is only disunity, if there is only discord, then we're no different from the world. 
If we fight and fuss and backbite and talk about each other all the time, we fit right in with the world because that's what non-believers or unbelievers do. If we have that notion or that permeates the church, there's no supernatural attraction to the church in and of itself. I appeal to you, brothers, back to verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. All of you agree. The word here, agree, means to speak the same. We have the same voice. We are unified with that voice. So, in essence, we shouldn't be going around talking about disagreeing or pushing back on things that go on within a church, right? Because when we do that, especially with unbelievers, we show them that we are not united. We show them the opposite of Jesus, and they are not attracted to what they can get anywhere else in the world. There is no unity in that. The word divisions here comes from the Greek word schism, schisma, which also comes schism. And it means to literally tear or rip apart. So he encourages them that there be no tearing or ripping apart among them, among you or among us. So instead of being torn apart, we should have the same mind or reasoning and the same judgment or conclusions. So he gives us the same thought process, the same reasoning that when leads to the same conclusions, where he says the same mind and the same judgment, we have reasoning and conclusions as a result of that. As I said when we looked at this issue in Romans, it's absolutely impossible for us to all be on perfect 100% harmony with each other. It, it just, we're humans, we're fallen, we, we can't get to that point. It's a standard, no doubt. But he's talking about the essential doctrines of our faith. Those things that are critical to an understanding of knowing Jesus and serving Jesus as a Christian and as our Lord and Savior. So it's important that we are on the same page with respect to those things that are critical to our faith. And we went through those when we looked at Romans. I'm not going to go back through those all over again. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Don't really know who Chloe is or was. Chloe seems to be a leader in the church at Corinth. And she had a group of people that was around her that maybe followed her. I'm not really sure. But it got back to Paul. And you look at this and maybe you say, well, Chloe's people should have minded their own business. Right? They're gossiping. Well, that's not the case here. The people that went to Paul didn't go to Paul and tell him about what was going on in the church at Corinth out of a desire to gossip or a desire to spread rumors. They went to Paul and shared that information with Paul as a call for help. Saying, look, Paul, we have a church that you started in Corinth, and it is being destroyed on so many different levels for so many different reasons right now. 
We need you to help us. We need you to intervene and come and give us a sense of direction on how to move forward. So that's really, in my mind, what was going on when whoever it was from Chloe's people told Paul that there was quarreling among the brothers and the sisters at the Corinthian church. And I think quarreling, or using the word quarreling, is a rather polite way to look at it. There was a whole lot more than just quarreling going on in this poor church. Verse 12, what I mean to say is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now we get to the heart of the quarrel. Now we get to the heart of the dispute, exactly what is going on. Folks, there's a whole litany of other problems that we're going to cover throughout these 16 chapters. But Paul puts this one front and center. I mean, there was brothers and sisters suing each other in that church. There was all types of sexual immorality going on in that church. There was different issues with respect to spiritual gifts in that church. It was full of everything, but yet this is the very first one, and in my mind, it's the most important to Paul. Because you've got to get this right before you can move on to the others. And so we see the groups. There were those in the church who espoused to, I follow Paul. And then there was another group that said, I follow Apollos. Another group, I follow Peter. Cephas and yet that last group where they all should have been I follow Christ so we see four groups and there might have been more these are just the four that that Paul mentions so it appears that baptism is actually wrapped up in this dispute as well essentially the church members were forming groups based on who baptized them I think we can get that out of the passages that come next. And so they were all of a different team. There were those who were of Team Paul, Team Apollos, Team Peter, and Team Christ. And when we get to these divisions or strife in a church, it usually results in groups forming, right? Because the individuals all want support. They don't want to be on that island, and so they run to try to find others that are like-minded and to form this group, and then they form a team, and then you end up with Team Paul, Team Apollos, or Team Cephas, or Team Jesus. And that's when bad things happen. That's when churches split. I mean, this particular church at Corinth was in serious danger of splitting four different ways. So that leads me to the next question. What is at the heart of all division and discord and disunity in a church? What is at the heart of it? If you take all the layers of that onion and you peel them all away, what's right there in the center? It's a four-letter word. It starts with P. It's pride. That's it. It is pride. Five-letter word, sorry. I saw Kelly tilt her head. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Five-letter word. It's pride. That's exactly what it is whenever you peel all those layers off. Being a Christian is about being selfless. But we're not perfect in that, are we? Because the I becomes somewhere in the middle of selflessness, which it has no place. 
But then that pride builds up. And it causes the division and strife and the hurt in so many churches. The world can't be selfless. It is only through the true working of the Holy Spirit that we're able to be selfless and to demonstrate true selflessness. True, unadulterated selflessness comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that it can come about. Now, the world can pretend to be selfless, but there's always some ulterior motive. There's always some reason why it appears that they are being selfless. They attempt to mimic and fake it, but it's not true selflessness. So when there is discord, that discord can always be pointed back to sin. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. We talked about the sin that comes and causes us to be offended. Whenever someone says something, we get offended and then we push back and then because that's about me, right? Poor me. I was offended. But nonetheless, it happens. And when that happens, teams get formed. And then when teams get formed, it only goes downhill from there. In verse 13, Paul begins to demonstrate the folly of this division. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He asks these questions because the answers are very obvious. Was I crucified for you? Of course not. Were you baptized in my name? And this is a biggie. Because anytime anyone's baptized or na- baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're not baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Peter. It's all about Christ. Being baptized into Christ Jesus. He wanted to let them know that they were baptized into Jesus and no one else. Regardless of who did it or how it was done, you were baptized into Christ. And that should be the focus. But they were getting sidetracked. They were getting sidetracked because they probably thought whoever baptized them did it a little bit better than whoever baptized their neighbor sitting across from them in the pew, right? Well, he did this, and Apollos didn't do that, and Cephas was right, and Apollos was wrong. Verse 14. Paul's being thankful here. I'm in the dispute, but I'm not in the dispute as much as some people are. I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, except for Crispus and Gaius. And then he kind of goes on thinking out loud so that not one of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So basically, he gives two plus of the, all the congregants in Corinth that he baptized. So he's saying there should be no reason why you're claiming to be baptized in my name because I didn't baptize any of you. I didn't participate in that. Now, he understood that the Corinthians were immature Christians, and they had a tendency to idolize their messenger. They had a tendency to idolize those that were baptizing them. And he wanted to make sure that they understood that was wrong. They believed that their guy was the best and didn't want to associate with anyone else. That rooster's a little late, Anna. (laughs) 
They didn't want to associate with anyone else. So we get then finally to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's talking about baptism, and clearly, giving this conversation here and what he has written, baptism was a big deal in this Corinthian church. And who baptized you was also a big deal in this Corinthian church. So he even goes so far as to say that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he's comparing baptism with the preaching of gospel here. He's wanting them to understand that it is more important that the gospel be preached than it is to be baptized or baptizing others. So it's sort of a backhanded way of playing down this whole notion of A, baptizing is so very important, and B, whoever does it. So he's saying, it was more important for me to preach the gospel than to baptize. Why is that? They couldn't understand that. He elaborates on it. It was more important for him to preach the gospel and that salvation came through the gospel message, not through baptism. And he wanted him to know that. He wanted him to say, it doesn't matter who you were baptized. It doesn't really matter how you were baptized. What matters is the gospel message was preached. You accepted the message. Jesus was your Lord and Savior. That's the end of the story. That's the most important thing. But they were getting sidetracked. And the source of being sidetracked was their own internal pride. And we're going to see that they had a lot of pride throughout all of these chapters in this book. More and more illustrations of that as we go forward. They wanted something to boast about. Something to say that they were right and everybody else that thought differently were, were wrong. The most important thing, Paul is saying, was the preaching of the gospel. But then he adds more to it. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. So he's saying, there's a danger in preaching the gospel. And the danger of preaching the gospel is the focus gets taken off the cross and put on the pulpit. And he said, I don't come to you speaking with words of eloquent wisdom. Matter of fact, you can see many times throughout the New Testament that Paul wasn't a very good speaker. He struggled with speaking. But he said, if I come to you and you all come to church because I was a great speaker, you're coming because of me and not because of the cross. And what does that do? That has you idolizing me and not the cross. And the power of the cross then is empty. So we say, I know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. So Paul's saying, baptism wasn't important. The way I proclaim the message isn't necessarily important with eloquent words of wisdom, but the most important thing is the gospel message of the cross that has the power to save when nothing else does. And he wanted them to make sure that they constantly understood that, that polished words and eloquent wisdom wasn't going to do anything but detract from the power of the cross. If he had put himself in the spotlight, nobody would have been saved. 
If everybody was coming just to hear Paul, the speaker, that gets no one anywhere. If they're coming to hear about Jesus and the sacrifice and what he does to forgive sins, then salvation comes because of that. So instead of Paul being the center of attention and being praised and worshipped, Christ should have been and should always be the center of attention to being praised and worshipped because it is only that that leads to salvation. So as I close and with all this in mind, Paul encourages us to avoid the petty disputes. It seems as though these folks were having disputes just because they could, just because they wanted to. It was that flesh of the old man that was creeping back into their new life. And that was something that Paul wanted to nip in the bud and deal with. That they should stay focused on the cross, stay focused on Christ, who is the perfecter and finisher of not only their faith, but ours as well. So when division rears its ugly head, always remember that the underlying cause is pride. Sometimes we can get so wrapped up in it that we lose sight of that. But if we tell ourselves, yeah, my feelings are hurt, but I know my feelings are hurt just because of the pride that is within me, then that'll help us move on. No one has been offended more than Christ Jesus. And yet he chose to die for each one of us that has offended him in a great deal. So as we move forward in anticipation of the tests that are coming, because God doesn't put these passages before us over and over and over again unless he is preparing us for something down the road, let us remember what the root cause of any division is and let us be on guard and prepared if and when that happens. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these words that Paul penned so very long ago, Lord, and for the wisdom that is within them. Lord, help, our, help us keep our eyes on Christ. Help us to avoid petty disputes. Help us to avoid division. May we, this church, be of one mind, be united in all things, Father, and be strong. And may the world be able to look at us and say that Jesus was your son, that he was the Savior and is the Savior, and he is the key to eternal life, Father, because we know that when we are united and are of one mind, it demonstrates that to unbelievers. Help us to remember that as we move forward, and may you be glorified in all we do say and think, for it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All rise.